Support comes from Empower Missouri's Week of Action with in-person and virtual advocacy training for affordable housing, criminal justice, and food security initiatives March 25th through 28th. Registration at empowermissouri.org WOA. Federal relief money and education policy are likely to be big issues during the 2022 legislative session in Missouri. And State Representative Doug Ritchie is at the forefront of both of those hot-button topics. The Clay County Republican joins us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to talk about how to divvy up American Rescue Plan funds and his new role of chairman of the Joint Education Committee. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent Jason Rosenbaum. We have a, a great treat today. In studio in St. Louis is St. Louis Public Radio's Statehouse reporter. Sarah Kellogg. Oh, man. It's great having you in studio and not through a box on Zoom. Definitely. definitely. But uh, not, that, not that a box on Zoom is bad because joining us is our guest who is, I, I believe, coming to us from Clay County, Missouri. Doug Ritchie. Thank you so much, Representative. You are a first-time guest, and as a first-time guest, you have to go through the entire rigmarole of explaining where your district is and what territory it encompasses. Well, uh, Jason and Sarah, it's definitely a delight to be with you today. Um, I am Doug Ritchie. I'm a state representative for the 38th district, which is Eastern Clay County. It takes in the areas of of uh, Liberty, Kearney, Excelsior Springs, running down to the Missouri River. So we're kind of in the Northland of the Kansas City metro area. So that's uh, that's the area that I'm representing. I'm in my second term and uh, enjoying the work. So what made you want to get involved in Missouri state politics? It goes back to 2016. I was recognizing and something that had, had been percolating for many years and in, in light of what I do outside of the Capitol where people were increasingly dissatisfied with uh, what was taking place in government. And because of that, the way that they would typically describe politicians was less than charitable. And the concern that I have with that in the long term is that when you are speaking uh, so consistently, and it doesn't really matter what sector or what side of the aisle that you're on, everyone seems to describe politicians similarly and what that does is it erodes the interest of, of decent people uh, having any interest whatsoever to get involved, because who wants to who wants to be involved with something that necessarily corrupts you, that necessarily means that you are not worth your weight and salt, that you are ignorant and, you know, what have you, all the other things, all the other adjectives that have been uh, thrown around at, at politicians for many years. So that that was unsettling for me uh, i too like many other people am frustrated and and have been frustrated but i i believe in the mission of public service and i think that uh, to the extent that it's possible if i can serve and serve uh, in a way to where after i um, 
am done, whether it's because I'm term limited or I lose an election, uh, that I can look back and say that I maintained my integrity, I operated with with respect and uh, did what uh, what I was called upon to do, then that helps to establish an example for people that you can engage in the public arena, you can serve in the public context, and it doesn't have to corrupt you. It doesn't have to turn you into a jerk. It doesn't have to lead you to do things that causes people uh, that live next door to you to, to wonder if they want to live next to you anymore. So we're going to go to the first line of topics, which is American Rescue Plan funds. That is kind of the shorthand I'm using for this influx of federal stimulus money, our relief money, or just federal money that has come into the state. I'm going to turn this over to Sarah because she has been covering this issue a lot deeper than I. So take it away, Sarah. Absolutely. So what has your committee been talking about in relation to American Rescue Plan Act money? Sure. Uh, For the benefit of your listeners, um, I am serving as the chair of the Federal Stimulus Appropriations Committee within the Budget Committee. We can talk about the structure if that's of interest uh, here in a bit. But so the committee that I am chairing, we we were put into place by Speaker Vescovo uh, the end of March, beginning of April sometime. And since that point, we have been working to identify uh, needs that can be met with these federal stimulus dollars. Uh, so it comes down to listening a lot and engaging both at the departmental level as well as vendors that that work with the state of Missouri, as well as many of our municipalities, uh, cities and counties that are that are striving to uh, to take care of various needs. These dollars are unique; they're one-time dollars. They're not reproducible, um, and we we have a steward res- stewardship responsibility for the way these dollars are being spent. So right now, what we've been doing is holding hearings to try to identify what would be appropriate priorities for us to tackle going into the regular session. And uh, yeah, we've done a lot of work, had a lot of conversations, and it seems to be going well so far. And I guess the next question I have is, you know, this money has already been allocated. I'm curious why to wait until a general session to allocate this money. Why not spend it earlier? Well, it it's it's been allocated and yet it hasn't been allocated because within departments money is coming in like for instance desi money has been allocated to education but the way in which desi is planning to spend dollars uh, within the 10 percent that they have access to uh, is still yet to be determined formally right so they have upwards of 200 million dollars but that that is not something that has been dictated by Washington as to how it's going to be spent. So the General Assembly has the responsibility and the authority to establish appropriations. So we're working with departments like DESE to to determine that. So the feds have established the broad parameters and the states are to work within those broad parameters as to how we believe those dollars should be prioritized. And when Missouri, to kind of contrast, so when Missouri received CARES Act funding, the legislature more or less kind of handed the reins over to the executive branch on how to spend that funding. Do you see things going differently with the American Rescue Plan um, Act funding? Do you think that, you know, how much of the spending will be up to the executive branch and how much do you think the legislature is going to want to dictate that? Good question. So when you look at the early iterations of the federal government's uh, effort to respond to COVID-19, 
we had, as everyone had, um, a lot that was coming at us in a in a very intense time, right? We were in the context of a pandemic, a lot of questions, a lot of things, a lot of those questions had not been answered yet. So at that time, what we believed to be best as a general assembly was to allow the executive branch uh, with the governor to make some of those decisions so that we're not we're not constantly have to come back into into a special session to make appropriations decisions. So we we decided to go ahead and uh, allocate a again kind of establishing for the state broad parameters and then the governor working within those parameters was able to spend those dollars to be as nimble as possible during those early months of uh, COVID-19. Uh, now we're at a different stage. I, I do believe that the General Assembly will will have more of a pronounced role like like we do typically in the budget process. Uh, obviously, we we work with the governor's office uh, to to make sure that we are uh, you know collaborating in a way that's that's good for Missourians. Uh, but I think the General Assembly is going to have more of an interest to play a, a more pronounced role than when compared to earlier um, CARES Act um, appropriations. Uh, what would be some things you would want to see? American Rescue Plan funds spent on? Sure. So remembering that these dollars are not reproducible. These are one-time dollars. Uh, We are not looking to stand up new programs that will create future obligations on the budget. So in order to be uh, properly mindful of the fact that we don't know what tomorrow holds when it comes to revenue, uh, we don't want to create uh, an additional obligation into the future. So we're looking at one-time appropriations on projects that do provide Missourians long-term benefit. So infrastructure, you know, roads, bridges, uh, we've, as, as I'm sure will come up in the conversation, uh, IT infrastructure overhaul is yeah. something that has really become um, a front and center issue for me uh, in this particular role. Uh, we're looking at Certainly in the education space, trying to find ways to help parents uh, chart a course for their stu- for their children uh, to overcome learning loss issues, right? Uh, but by and large, we're looking at one-time appropriations on infrastructure and other types of projects that provide Missourians a long-term benefit without a future uh, obligation on state revenue. So you're not the only lawmaker that has expressed interest in revamping the state's IT system. We had Senator Lincoln Huff on the show who said that that was a good idea. And we also had Senate Appropriations Chairman Dan Hageman on the program to talk about that topic. Here is Senator Hageman. I think for years we have ignored uh, upgrading some of our IT systems out there. And so there's a great need to do that. We did a lot of IT uh, upgrades in the fiscal year 21 budget. Uh, but I also think that there'll be an opportunity to continue the up- IT upgrades in the fiscal year 22 budget is what we'll be looking at. Can you just explain why you think it would be beneficial to the state to revamp Missouri's IT system? There is not a single loser in this project. When <laughs> when, when you think so often of the, the ideas that, that percolate in the Capitol, uh, there are winners and losers in most of those. And that's just part of legislating, uh, right? And we, we, we all understand that. In, in this, we have a benefit to, to Missourians. We have a, a benefit to Missouri businesses. We have a benefit to Missouri entrepreneurs. 
We have a benefit to legislators. We have a benefit to state employees. We have a benefit to state bureaucracy. Everyone benefits when you take a serious look at overhauling state IT. We have people right now that are extremely frustrated when the state reaches out to them on a particular need and the state requests information. Well, we've got unique one-off siloed systems that don't share information. The state actually has your information in one area, but it's, it's, un it's not accessible when it comes to another area. Uh, even within departments, departments themselves are frustrated because they have systems that don't communicate well with one another. Our appropriations staff will ask them questions about a particular a matter of appropriations or revenue or what have you, and they have a hard time being able to access data because the systems don't communicate well. So we have Missouri citizens that are frustrated. We have people who are trying to access uh, social services that are frustrated because they don't know who to talk to. You talk to one department, they say, oh, no, we're not the right department. You need to talk to these people over here. And then you try to get a hold of them. And then you're supposed to fax a document. I mean, who faxes documents? Well, before you continue, um, I, I have to be I have to disclose something. I'm kind of in the midst of this right now myself because um, we, we recently had a daughter and the hospital misspelled her name to Bosenbaum, corrected it immediately. But when my wife called Missouri Vital Records, they said they're backlogged. So it appears that our daughter will bear the last name Bosenbaum until the hospital correction works its way through the system. Now, I don't know if that's related to the IT, but in my mind, that's a correction that should have been corrected like in two minutes. No, it's it's that and, and then some. We should have the ability. Other, It's not like we're trying to, to create something. This is already present. It's already functional. The, the software um, is already out there. Uh, wouldn't it be wonderful to wake up to a day where a Missouri citizen, Jason, in your situation, you've got an issue with your daughter and what have you, where you can, you can pull up your smartphone, you have a unique password protected ID, you can go in and you have a dashboard, a portal, if you will, to all things state bureaucracy. And, and in, in that app, you're able to find information that the state has on you. If you're needing to talk with um, the, you know, the vital statistics folks, you know, you know what they have on you. If something needs to be corrected, you can get that taken care of. If you need to, if you need to pay your, um, uh, pay for your, to renew your tags, be able to do that. Now DOR is already kind of working on, on things like that, but where you have a, a, a one-stop shop where you have a dashboard to all things state bureaucracy, that way, you know, if, if you end up with a diagnosis for, for, for one of your children and you're thinking of what programs exist mm -hmm. out there to help a family in our situation, you shouldn't have to figure out. You shouldn't, act, quite frankly, have to call a state representative to find out what programs exist. Yeah. Right. You should be able to easily find that information by going to the department. But the problem is this. We have departments that are fulfilling roles that are completely unrelated to their mission set. Mm. So, for instance, if you are if you're going through the process for uh, uh, disability, mm -hmm. my thought would be that you're going to be talking to somebody within social services. 
right? I mean, somebody within the broader landscape of social services with all the various agencies and departments focused on that one area, somebody there is going to be my contact for disability questions. But that's not the case because for some of us, uh, we have to start with DESI. Now, why would I, as a 48-year-old guy, have to talk with the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education about a disability claim? It's because DESI has the contract with the feds to do disability determinations. Who knows that kind of stuff, right? Only people who are, who are very well involved in terms of state bureaucracy. The average citizen would not know that, and that gets frustrating. So when we talk about overhauling state IT, for me, when I talk about that, this is what I mean putting an overlay across the entire structure of state IT to where, where citizens and businesses and other entities that have to engage Missouri bureaucracy, where they have a one-stop shop, if you will, to be able to engage all of that bureaucratic, bureaucratic work to alleviate their frustration. And then on the back end, begin to update and, and replace older antiquated systems so that the so that the departments can work more efficiently as well. So that's that's what we're looking at. And quite frankly, it's it's something it's it's a lot of money, but it's not nearly as much money as I thought it was going to be. Mm -hmm. And I think it is the right thing to do. It's the time to do it. We have money now to do it. There's really no reason not to, other than the fact that it's intimidating when you think about overhauling state IT. It's an intimidating concept. Uh, but, you know, gone are the days of giving in to mere intimidation. We need to do it. So you know, I, I don't have any kids, but I do have a car with Arkansas license plates still. So even you mentioning the DMV made me perk up a little bit about simplifying that because I don't I don't want to go through that. But to change topics a little, you know, has your committee discussed what it would want to do with the nearly one billion in American Rescue Plan funds that will arrive because the state expanded Medicaid? And if so, where would you like to see that money go? Yeah, so those conversations are very young at, at this stage. So I, I'm not only chairing this committee that that oversees federal stimulus dollars. So we will be relate, you know, we will be uh, working in the context of what these dollars are and and how they can be uh, allocated. But I'm also on a committee within budget committee that that oversees the appropriations for all things social services up to and including Medicaid. So I, I will have conversations uh, about this in both of those contexts and then the broader budget committee. As, as you know, what your listeners may not be aware of, appropriations committees, one of which I'm a chair of, the other I'm a member of, operate within the context of the broader budget committee. Mm -hmm. So we do work uh, as at the appropriations level, it then goes to the full budget committee and then we we talk about it again and vote on it again. So, and I'm on I'm I'm on budget committee and also on these two appropriations committees. So, to your question on the billion dollars, the department is going to be working very closely with the governor. Uh, they've already turned in. I, I've I've not yet looked at the specific details on these dollars yet, but uh, they're going to be working very closely when the governor makes his his budget recommendations in the area of Medicaid and social services that are that are affected by these dollars now that will be coming in. Uh, we're, we're just going to be looking at what what is uh, appropriate, what what they can be spent on, what they can't be spent on. We'll be right back after this quick break with State Representative Doug Ritchie. 
If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio. And we're back on Politically Speaking with State Representative Doug Ritchie. He is a Republican from Clay County. I want to talk about another committee that you're on. You're on quite a few uh, important and impactful committees in the Missouri General Assembly, and that's the Joint Education Committee. First off, can you explain what this committee does and, and why you wanted to take the role as chairman? Sure. So the Joint Education Committee is made up of both Senate and House members. It's tasked with the responsibility of overseeing all things education, both K through 12, as well as higher ed. Um, we're tasked with really asking the 30,000 foot questions, uh, doing deeper dives on particular matters. We're not necessarily a policy committee uh, where other committees during the regular session are hearing bills and we are voting on bills. That's not the role of the joint committee. Uh, the Joint Committee is, is really to, to, to look at policy and, and to make sure that, uh, that DESE is doing what it's supposed to be doing, that the Department of Higher Ed is doing what it's supposed to be doing. So, yeah, I mean, in, in my time on the committee thus far, uh, we have had hearings on MOCAP, you know, the, the virtual education uh, component within K through 12 that uh, has been in existence now for a few years. Uh, we've had hearings on how how schools are responding to accusations of of the presence of critical race theory, um, funding for higher ed. So yeah, that's the the makeup is is unique in that it's it's made up of both chambers. Uh, and I, I I think that for me, the the reason I was glad to to be uh, put in that role by the members of that committee, um, I, I I enjoy education. I, I'm someone that believes in the mission of education. I think that, uh, both at the higher ed level as well as uh, K through 12. Um, if we don't get education right, we suffer for it for generations. So I hope that I can serve in that capacity in a way that that does um, help us as a state uh, overall when we're talking education. So you've touched on a couple of these already, but you know, what are some policies or issues that you're expecting to maybe come up and discuss in the committee You know, during this upcoming session? Sure. I, I think the committee has been... Uh, fairly responsive to the current angst that everyone's aware of, both the national conversation as well as, you know, the conversation within the state of Missouri, right? We've had a lot of people reaching out to us, both within education as well as parents that are concerned about uh, the presence of critical race theory, uh, trying to define it, trying to figure out how you discern it, what do you do with it? Um, that as well as in, in uh, my estimation as as i am looking at public education at the k through 12 level there is a very clear erosion of trust between parents the communities and the schools uh, in many of in many areas within the state of missouri so how do you regain trust how do you rebuild trust uh, those are going to be some big questions that i think we're going to have to uh, to look at and I think at the higher ed level, um, I, I want Missouri to be known for um, being a, um, uh, a trendsetter when it comes to tremendous universities, right? I, I don't always agree with what goes on on campuses. I don't always agree with what's being taught, but that's the point of universities. Um, you know, you, you, um, you realize that they have a task 
And what I would love is for both our private uh, universities and colleges, as well as our public, to be well thought of nationally. When people are asking the questions about what are the what are the best universities, I want them to begin to think very quickly about those that operate within Missouri. And the reason for that, beyond just the fact that education plays a significant role, we all know that the population of traditional incoming college freshmen is is dropping Mm -hmm. and it will continue to drop and it will drastically drop in the next decade. So it's going to become more difficult as there are fewer and fewer incoming college freshmen for many universities. So I think we need to do some serious work to make sure that when fewer parents are making decisions as to where their children are going to be attending universities, that more often they're thinking about Missouri. So I want to touch on the critical race theory controversy, because that is something that your committee has held hearings on. And I I, I fired up the Google machine, as I like to call it, to try to get a definition of critical race theory myself. And one website describes it as, quote, that racism is not merely the product of individual bias or prejudice but also something embedded in legal systems and policies. And, I, and I've heard some people say, like, you know, critical race theory is something that's taught in law school. It's not really being taught in, in K through 12. What have your committee found on that point? And why do you think parents are so animated about this particular issue? Sure. So when people ask me what definition to use with respect to critical race theory. I just point them to the proponents of, of critical theory, critical race theory, uh, because they, they've defined it. Uh, but there's also this very interesting marriage of sorts with critical theorists and a more postmodern uh, philosophy of life. Uh, in, in postmodernity, there's a, um, a tendency to avoid clear definitions. Mm-hmm. They, they love fluid definitions. So when you meld a postmodern component to critical theory, uh, it becomes very difficult for people to know if they're defining it properly. So I just point them to to the definitions that are that are provided by those uh, um, those sources that are actually uh, supporting and and pressing for critical race theory to be adopted. Um, it, that's more important than a definition that, that Doug Ritchie has of critical right. race theory. So with that, I think that um, the, the reason I think parents are concerned is that the implications of critical race theory, the assumptions, the conclusions that are being brought up in classrooms, when you, when you have students sitting in a classroom at, at any grade level, you know, in K through 12, that are being made to feel like that that just simply because of the way they look, they are oppressed. And for other students sitting in the very same classroom, that that for no other reason than the way they look, they are a part of an oppressive system and therefore they share collective guilt. That's a problem. That's a divisive ideology. And, and parents um, are, are concerned about that. We've heard, as you know, I mean, we've had parents that have reached out uh, minority parents, uh, parents that, that are not in uh, minority uh, status that have that have both uh, communicated that they don't like what's being communicated to their children 
uh, in this way that is very divisive. And I think beyond that, beyond the divisive element and 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 leaving children in a position where they're they're being led by these assumptions and conclusions to feel like they ex that they are um, responsible in some way because of collective guilt. Uh, beyond that concern, I think that you also have uh, larger concerns when it comes to the way that that it affects our understanding of of any number of of content areas within schools, history uh, or, or otherwise. Right. And I think that that's one of the things that people point uh, who are, are not a fan of this pushback against critical race theory say. They say that this isn't about critical race theory specifically, that this is about a pushback against black history or other forms of minority history. And I'm sure you've heard that argument, and I think you deserve a chance to, to respond to that argumentation. Sure. Yeah, I, I've been accused uh, of being one that, that doesn't want history taught and certainly doesn't want accurate history taught. And to that, I say that's that's not true. I love history. I was bit by the history bug a long time ago. Yeah, history as was I. I, I almost majored in history, by the way, but continue. Yes. <laughs> history is messy, uh, but history teaches us so much um, in terms of the victories of the past as well as the, the, the quote unquote sins of the past as well. So I, I've told people, listen, if you want to teach, should we teach the Tulsa massacre? Absolutely, we should teach the Tulsa massacre. Should we teach the Jim Crow era? Absolutely, we should teach the Jim Crow era. What I have a problem with is when you begin to redact history to fit into a particular um, um, narrative. And, and it is, a, this is one of those things that I brought up in, in some of our hearings. When you read uh, critical theorists, they have no problem with linking critical theory to Marxist um, uh, views of the world and relationships and things. Like that. They don't have a problem with the connection of Marxism and critical race theory. They really don't. Um, so when you when you look at that, uh, for me, I think a, a Marxist redaction of history is is extremely problematic. I want history to be taught. I want a robust history. I want the full arc of history to be taught. Because quite frankly, when you have students sitting in a classroom that look like me, and you've got students sitting in a classroom that don't look like me, uh, and you're, you're, you're trying to address matters that are affecting their lives today against a historical backdrop, the best way that you can bring harmony and unity and mutual respect and mutual trust is not by identifying the fact that one particular person that looks a particular way has been the recipient of the oppressive tactics of a particular group of people, and that's it. You, you build harmony and mutual compassion by recognizing that in history, every segment of the human population has experienced oppression, has suffered, has sacrificed, uh, has, has blood on their hands, if you will. Uh, we all share in that historical experience of difficulty, sacrifice, oppression, and even um, being guilty of doing things that, that should not have been done. So that actually helps to bolster uh, the ability for, for children as they're growing up to identify with one another, even though we may look differently. So uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a Baptist minister, yeah. right? Yesterday was October 31st. It's Reformation Day, right, for, for Protestants, right? Mm -hmm. There was a time where people like myself as Baptist ministers were drowned in rivers because we, we taught and we preached 
uh, the importance of believers' baptism. Mm -hmm. We were drowned in rivers because we didn't agree with a particular position that the majority held, right? That's a part of my past. That's a part of my history, right? Um, So there's something in history that helps to anchor all of us to a shared experience of, of, of difficulty of, of, of victories. And, and quite frankly, I'm grateful that we live in a very eclectic society. I mean, I, I am. And we, when we have a lot of people that are very different, we are better off. I think, you know, kind of the pushback against this pushback on critical race theory, or it is teaching kind of history in a different way. So when you're talking about universal experiences, I think some of the pushback as well, the way it has been taught for decades and decades and decades and eons is through a white perspective. And, and we and we aren't learning about the Tulsa race massacre, and we're not learning about the Elaine massacre that happened in Arkansas. So I think, you know, how do you teach that then it's universal when really it has been this white perspective taught until, you know, maybe now with this reevaluation? Within, within the, the academic uh, context of history, right? You, professors who've taught history for many, many decades. When you look at the way history has been approached for centuries, um, it's it's really not until just recently where we talked about something being taught as white history. So I, I think that for me, um, being one who who's a in in many respects more of a classicist, I. I, I, I would reject the notion that that um, history today is just simply a white history, because when you again, to the degree that you teach a robust history, you're going back into uh, the classical period of the development of, you know, the, the Greco-Roman period. Right. Well, they, they certainly would not have been identified with a, a Caucasian, you know, white you know, mindset in 21st century America, right? You're talking Middle Eastern, right? And and that plays into the development of Western civilization. Uh, the, there's also, uh, in, a, in a very apparent way, when you look at robust history and you're looking at, uh, at original sources, you have people from all different perspectives that are, that are speaking into what has happened and we read from them, right? You build a confidence level, right, uh, in on the part of people who right now don't seem to have a lot of confidence in the way history is being taught. You, you help to bring them along, not by limiting history in the way it's being taught, but by bolstering the history itself. One of the things we were talking about offline was your thought about how school boards may need to reorient how they do public comment and public meetings. And I'd like you to expand upon that because having been a parent during COVID and seeing how some uh, school boards react, including mine in Maplewood, Richmond Heights, um, even if I agreed with some of the decisions they made, I, I do agree that maybe they need to change the way they deal with the public. So why don't I would like you to elaborate on that a little bit. We are not going to regain trust by operating the way that we're currently operating school board meetings, my opinion. When parents come into a school board meeting and they're asking questions, they're making comments, but those questions that they're asking are legitimate questions. And even if they're not legitimate questions, they're asking questions of a locally elected body. When those questions are asked and the locally elected body sits quiet, 
and it's crickets. That is not a way to regain trust. Historically, the reason that that, is, that has been the approach, one is it's been convenient because school districts by and large over the years have enjoyed the general support and encouragement and trust of their communities and parents. Um, but that's changed in, in many areas of Missouri. You can't operate business as usual when the very community and the parents that make up that community that once supported you and loved you are now really upset with you. To continue functioning in that fashion only serves to, to increase their angst. It doesn't alleviate it. So what has happened, school boards will get together, they'll meet, and it, it in many respects helps to preserve the superintendent as the primary voice of the district because school board members aren't speaking specifically to matters within the public comment period, or quite frankly, even during the board meeting itself. Um, but I think that what we now need to recapture for the benefit of regaining trust is that school board members are locally elected individuals to sit on a public entity's board to make sure that the public school district is functioning the way that it should and that it's spending tax dollars properly. So I think that school board members are gonna to have to come to terms with their responsibility directly to their constituents. School board members do not work for superintendents. Superintendents work for the school board. And when a school board member is elected that school board member as an individual is an elected member of that body. They don't work for the board. They work for the people that elected them. So I think that they're gonna have to figure out how to interact and engage in a way that shows respect to the fact that parents are, are concerned, they're asking questions. And quite frankly, when a parent comes in and asks a question that's not necessarily uh, germane or, or legitimate, uh, you can still respond and interact with that person in a way that's respectful. You don't have to agree with them. Uh, but I do think that you owe it to those that you that, that voted for you to be responsive. Well, thank you very much, Representative, for your time today. For all of our stories, stlpr.org. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Sarah on Twitter at... Sarah K. Kellogg. I... I I know you have a Twitter and a Facebook account. I saw on Facebook you were handing out full-size candy bars for Halloween. Good for you. Yes. Uh, you're one of those yes. people. Is there any way for people to get a hold of you on social media or any other parts of the World Wide Web? Yes. Uh, Doug Ritchie Mo on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you very much. And until next time, so long. St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East. 
We put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts.